0: Our Father, we choose, in Jesus' name, to submit ourselves to your authority today, to bow before your majesty, to look into your word as your voice to us today, and to personally accept responsibility for what you say to us, and to apply it daily, and to learn to live in a way that our new life in Christ can be seen by all, And that we will truly be people whose lives are used by you to transform our environment, those around us, this world in which we live. Father, we invite you to be present here this morning to touch us according to our need. Father, I pray that you will bless the service which is occurring at this hour, that you will be in every Sunday school class, and that your Holy Spirit will move upon your people this day, and that you will draw many into your kingdom through the preaching of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to the fourth chapter of Joshua, I'd like to read beginning verse 19. Joshua chapter 4, verse 19. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the sons of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Israel has crossed the Jordan in a powerful way. The two plus million people have moved across a riverbed that has been dried up for some 20 miles of its length. We don't know how many hours it took them to cross, but it took a while because we need to remember again that it wasn't just a matter of a bunch of people crossing a dry riverbed. They had to take everything with them. Everything with them. Their tents, their possessions, their herds, move it all across into Canaan. This camp at Gilgal will be the Israelite base camp in Canaan. And from this camp, they will launch their invasion of the many Canaanite kingdoms. The exact site of Gilgal is not known. Some of you have probably noticed that in your bulletin there is this, uh, these maps. And these maps probably, I didn't ask, but they probably come off of a computer program. And if you look at the second side where the two small maps are, uh, the bottom map, I, I need to point out that the route of the conquest, if you look at this map and go to the right of the map, you see Heshbon. And then you see you see Beth Jeshemoth. Now, that is the route by which Israel came. Israel came, Heshbon Jeshemoth to the plain of Moab, which was right smack at the head of the Dead Sea. So I, I don't know where this, uh, whoever drew up this map in the beginning and put it onto the computer program, put, got Shatim. but you see Shatim at the top, that's nowhere near where Shatim was. I have a whole bevy of atlases at home put out by the Institute of Hololand Studies, by Moody Bible Institute, by the Jews themselves. And Shittim is down near, directly uh, west of Beth Jesimush, directly west of that. That's where Shittim was, because that's where the plain of Moab was. And, And so they came across the Jordan River there, just to the north of the Dead Sea. Now... The location of Gilgal is very uncertain. There's no doubt about that. The passage we read tells us only that it was east of Jericho. That's the only thing that we're told. And most of the maps put it about where the top of the J is on Jericho. So it is slightly to the north and east, but not as many miles away as it shows. I I haven't seen any map that shows it where it is on this map. But at about the top of the J, or even between Jericho and the river to the southeast, is often shown too. Now, the problem with this is, it was just a camp. It wasn't a city. It was just a campsite. And locating campsites is very difficult, especially when they're 3,400 years old. The only thing that, of course, would have been maintained would have been the pile of stones. The memorial pile was built, and, and it would have been maintained. But of course, that has long been lost and no longer preserved. And and therefore, modern archaeologists, as they study this, of course, cannot for sure locate a campsite like this. And so, you know, it's not likely to have been so far north as it is here, because obviously here, we're looking at Shittim being way up to the north and coming that way, which um, I haven't found any source that points that route. But anyway, the the point of the whole matter is, uh, Gilgal was very close to Jericho, probably not more than two to three miles away from Jericho, because from the fords of the river to Jericho was at the maximum seven miles. And so as they crossed and got themselves over and got themselves established, they were fairly close to the city of Jericho itself, within sight of its walls, easily. The name Gilgal means the circle, and it's, it's a fairly common name. There are other Gilgals in, history, in the history of the Hebrew nation. But um, this, this Gilgal is probably named for two things, one of which we'll see in this account and then the passage as we go into the next chapter makes it very clear that that was part of the source for the name too. But uh, they may have placed the memorial stones in, in a circular arrangement and hence the circle uh, term for the stones of remembrance. But the scripture doesn't give us a description of what the pile looked like. So, so this we just assume from the name. The camp was a very important place because this is the very first place in the land of Canaan where Israel is to actually settle for a moment. And they will plant the, the the tabernacle for the first time in Canaan, in the promised land, at Gilgal. It had been set up, of course, for all those years in the wilderness. This is the first time that it is set up in the Holy Land or the promised land itself. And once they had set up the, the, um, the tabernacle, set up all their tents, then we read in this passage, uh, Joshua calls all of, the, all of Israel, meaning all the leaders of Israel, together for a general assembly, an ecclesia, in Greek, which is the root word for church. They weren't having a, quote, church meeting, but they were having a meeting in which Joshua was speaking to them. And he was informing them, why was this memorial pile established? You see, they didn't know. He had explained it to the twelve. And they'd gotten the rocks and carried them over there. But now he needed to explain it to the whole of the nation. What was this memorial pile for? And, of course, he pointed out, as we read, that it was to be a visual aid. A visual aid to instruct future generations concerning the miracle that God had performed in bringing the people across the Jordan River. Now, Let me just highlight this one more time. You'll find that people will argue about what was the Red Sea that was crossed. Was it really the Red Sea? Or was it a sea of reeds? Was it a lake? Was it just a muddy flat that that the Israelites crossed? I mean, there are all kinds of speculation that goes on today about that. The point of the scripture is that whatever was the Red Sea that they crossed and whatever was the condition of the Jordan that they crossed, it was a miracle from God. It was a totally out-of-the-ordinary phenomenon. It was not just... Oh, well, you know, a little mud splashed into the river and diverted it for a few hours and so they could trot across the muddy bottom of the river. It doesn't say that at all. And whether the Red Sea that was crossed was actually uh, an arm of the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds or some big lake or whatever it was, isn't really terribly relevant. Because actually, if you were here when we studied Genesis, we we looked at the fact that the Hebrew there is actually Yam Suf, and, and that means Sea of Reeds well, does Sea of Reeds literally mean Red Sea or, or does it mean a brackish body of water? Well, you know, the point is they couldn't cross without a miracle. They couldn't cross without a miracle. Obviously, if they could have just trotted on across that body of water, their Egyptian army wouldn't have been a problem, right? They could just go and run across the lake. No, it, they, were, they were pressed against this body of water. They couldn't cross. They were in a crisis in their lives and God performed a miracle. That's the real point of it all. To deny the miraculous that God has done is the folly. To argue about what exactly was the body of water and what its condition was, you know, becomes really irrelevant in the long run. Verse 24 of this passage informs us of the ultimate purposes of the memorial pile. It tells us that the pile was to teach all nations of the power of Yahweh. To teach all nations of the power of Yahweh And to remind Israel to worship and obey the Lord forever. To remember to serve the Lord in perpetuity. Now we might say, how can a little pile of 12 stones sitting over there in the Jordan Valley teach all nations of the power of Yahweh? Well, how do you know about it? How do I know about it? (laughs) Because we're reading it in the Word. And the Word is being proclaimed around the world. So nations are hearing of what God had done And I trust that in your heart, as in mine, that we we thrill over the thought of what God did for Israel. The great miracle of of halting the Jordan River in flood stage, (coughs) whether he used a mighty earthquake to dam the river up there at Adam or whatever he used, we need to remember God can do whatever he chooses to do by whatever means he chooses to do it. He doesn't have to be limited by what humans think God should do or can do. We need to break as far away from the Enlightenment style of thinking as we can when it comes to understanding Scripture and the miracles that God has performed. We do not want to be deists in the slightest way. We want to be people of faith who believe in the miraculous intervention of God for the furtherance of His kingdom. Let's go on to the first chapter Of Joshua verse 1. I like to just read that single verse here to begin with. Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. Now, can you imagine if all Israel did was ford the Jordan? What would be the point of this passage or this verse? I mean, if I were a Canaanite and I heard somebody forded a river, I don't think I'd be particularly frightened by that. Obviously, there was a miracle that was performed that was beyond anything they had comprehended. That's why they were afraid. Israel was finally in the land. And from the bridgehead at Gilgal, Joshua prepared to strike westward into the heart of Canaan. And this passage tells us that the Amorite and Canaanite populations were totally dispirited. But why were they dispirited? Because of Israel? Not really. They were dispirited because of Israel's God. That's what was frightening them. Israel? Just, just a, like a plague of grasshoppers out there, you know? But, but Israel's God. The people of Canaan were very very religious. Again, without going into all the gory details, the peoples who lived in Canaan, under the general rubric of Canaanite, were worshippers of various polytheistic sorts, and they worshipped a series of gods that were no, no, notably, generally, fertility gods and goddesses, and all the practices that were common with that. But they believed in the power of their gods because... We have to remember Satan does have a measure of power. And he does exhibit that power through these gods. And that's how he keeps people tied to them. But in all of their worship, they had never witnessed anything that remotely resembled the display of power that God had given in the three things that are remembered by them. The crossing of the Red Sea. The crossing of the Red Sea had occurred 40 years before, and yet they're still biting their teeth over it. And, and then the re- relatively easy Israelite conquest of the nations east of the Jordan in Gilead and Bashan. And then <laughs> the river is in flood. It's at its peak flow, and suddenly it's stopped, and Israel comes across, and as soon as they're crossed, it flows again. They knew their gods, gods could not do that. It was startling to them. It was incredible. And it was dispiriting because when they put their God here and they compared him to Yahweh, they thought, whoa, there's no comparison here. Our gods have never done anything like that. Well, with the Canaanites paralyzed by fear, it would, seem, would have seemed appropriate to have immediately launched a massive attack against The Canaanite cities just move on a broad front and attack all these paralyzed people while they're frozen, you know, and don't know what to do next. But God does something different. He says, time out, time out, time out. We're not going one step further until we take care of some business here. There were some vital spiritual matters that needed to be dealt with before Israel was truly ready to occupy the promised land. Consecration to God is absolutely essential for victory to be assured. And you can take that on the broad front, you can take take that on the narrow front. You can talk about a church, you can talk about an individual. It's true individually, it's true corporately. We must be consecrated to the service of God in order for victory to be ours in the spiritual realm. God was not going to give them the land until they gave themselves to him in obedience. As I've emphasized before, God's promises are contingent. They're contingent on obedience. So Israel, first of all, had to renew the seal of the covenant. And then they had to again practice the Passover celebration. So let's move on to verse 2 through verse 12 of chapter 5. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make for yourselves flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel a second time. Now, this verse needs to be understood in the context. He's not saying that you're circumcising the same people twice. He's talking about the fact that they had been before the the ones who had come out of Egypt, but they're all dead now, and this new generation had not been at all. So the first one, first circumcision he's talking about was that which occurred before they left. Now we're talking about a new generation. So Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Harloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised. But all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they had not listened to the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. (laughs) And their children whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them along the way. Now it came about when they had finished circumcising all the nation, that they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. Which also means, in addition to circle, a place of rolling. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the fourteenth day of the month on the, deserts of the plain, uh, desert plains of Jericho. And on the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year." Now, to people who do not understand what it means to be a Hebrew, uh, this passage is going to sound weird with all the emphasis upon circumcision. But all the males who had left Egypt in the Exodus had been circumcised. Israel had been practicing this faithfully down through the generations, through the hundreds of years of captivity. But during the the 39, 40 years of wilderness wandering, which resulted because Israel refused to obey God at Kadesh Barnea, Again, remember the 12 spies went in, 12 came back, 10 said, yeah, the land's great, but we can't take it. The people are giants. The walls are too strong. Two, of course, Joshua and Caleb said, yeah, we can, but the people listened to the 10, refused to go in, and therefore God said, you will not enter the promised land. And so, During that 40 years of wilderness wandering, although they repented and decided they would go in anyway and God said, no, you won't go in, they did not transform their ways because the measure of spiritual indifference is illustrated here by the fact that none of these people circumcised their male babies during that 40 years of the wilderness. None. Why? Because they didn't care about being obedient. They had stiff necks. Now they're about to begin the conquest of the land that had been promised to Abraham, and God required them to demonstrate their obedience to him by reestablishing the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. I'd like to go back to Genesis chapter 17. Begin reading at verse 8. The beginning part of the chapter tells us that Abraham, when he was 99, God appeared to him as El Shaddai. And God talked about multiplying him and uh, making him a father of a great nation and establishing a covenant with him. And then in verse 8, he says, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their Elohim, their God. God further said to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between you and me. Every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner, who is not of your descendants, A servant who is born in your house, who is bought with your money, shall be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. What he is talking about here, of course, is a simple act of obedience. Simple act of obedience. And that is exactly what God is talking about to Israel here. You're going to go in the land, you're going to conquer the land, right? And you're going to be my people, right? Well, you better get about obeying me. You better get about doing the grassroot things you're supposed to have done long time ago. It would have been a lot nicer for a lot of these men had it happened at eight days old. Now, when you're 40 and 50 or whatever, it, it wouldn't be any fun. Let me clear you. Well, I would assume from what I've heard. <laughs> uh, it, it, it was, of course, something that had to be done. And God was not going to bring special blessing upon his people if they would not even obey him in this most basic manner. If they refuse to do this, why should he bless them? You know, it just reminds me so much of, of, of what you hear in the news today, you know, who, of people who call out to God and they want God to do something for them because they're in this horrible crisis. But if you watch their daily walk, they're about as far as God as you can get. They, they want God in an in emergency, but they don't want God in their daily life because He's a killjoy, cosmic killjoy. And God doesn't function that way. <laughs> Blessing comes because of obedience. He hears our prayer if we're obedient. The only prayer He hears from an unrepentant heart is a prayer of repentance. God save me. He hears that prayer from an unrepentant, from a person who, was, who is living, uh, you know, a pagan life, who's ready to repent and be converted. He hears that prayer. But a prayer of somebody who has no intent of becoming God's child, but just wants God to help him in that situation, it doesn't go any higher than this acoustic tile. It's a waste of time. By their obedience here, at this point, and we have no statement here of anybody rebelling against this, of anybody saying, no way, we're doing this. They all submitted to it in obedience. And because of that obedience, we're told in this passage that the the reproach of 400 years of slavery rolled off their shoulders. They could could speak as if they were no longer had ever been enslaved or a people who had been slaves. On top of that, the reproach of the disobedience of their fathers at Kadesh Barnea would be removed too. See, they are no longer looked upon by God as the ones who rejected God's will and would not go into Kadesh Barnea. They are looked upon as obedient people who are serving Him and wanting to do His will, and He accepts them, and He works through them. Donald Campbell, in his commentary on Joshua, says this, An indication of this event's importance is the fact that a new significance was attached to the name Gilgal. Not only was the meaning circle, circle, To remind Israel of the memorial stones, but now the related idea of rolling would commemorate Israel's act of obedience at the same site. So the camp at Gilgal has a double value here. And the two words, rolling and circle, are all incorporated in the single Hebrew word, Gilgal. And the idea of a, of a circle and the idea of a rolling away, all of it being here and part of this. And so they could remember it as a place where they built the stones in honor of God's, uh, of God's miracle on their part and a place where they, in an act of obedience as a nation, they said, We will do your will, O God. And he carried them forth to victory in the land of Canaan. I think it's very important here to understand the meaning of all of this uh, circumcision stuff because obviously, uh, circumcision is a medical thing that is still practiced today. It has no spiritual connotation for most people. Circumcision of the flesh, as it was performed then as an act of sealing the Abrahamic covenant was merely a sign of the circumcision of the heart. That's really what it was. It was a sign of something internal of something spiritual. was an outward sign of an inward commitment. That's what its real intent was, would be. Simply to be a, a, a circumcised Hebrew didn't mean you went to heaven. You, you had, that was a, simply a sign of the fact that you were committed to the God of Israel and you would walk obediently with him. And then, of course, the sign had true meaning. The idea was that it, Israelites would be separated from other peoples because it was not a widely practiced um, surgical procedure in those days. And, and that's why you have these statements here um, back in uh, Genesis about, well, if you, if you have a slave in your household or somebody else is from the outside is brought in, you've got to circumcise them to be a part of your household because they probably won't be because they're from some other nationality. But what it symbolized, of course, was a separation of Israel from the world to God. Abraham was the called out one. Abraham was the one... who who obeyed God and and righteousness was imputed to him for that. And and, and so what is happening here is these Israelites are taking the Abrahamic sign of that covenant which God had said, I will give you this land as you become spiritual Israel. And this principle of spiritual circumcision is carried over into the New Testament. I'd like to read from Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. See to it. That no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions having canceled out the debt certificate of debt consisting of the decrees against us and which was hostile to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him. This is one of the most powerful passages in the whole New Testament in understanding who Jesus Christ is and what exactly it was he came to do. No, no matter who comes to your door and tries to tell you otherwise, this passage makes it very clear who Jesus Christ is. Um, the word deity is, is you, that's translated deity is only used one time in the entire New Testament. used exactly right here. And it is a powerful word r- relative to God. And it is not saying that uh, in Jesus a little bit of God dwelt because in us there's a little flame of God in all of us. You know, all you have to do is kind of fan it. You ever listen to some of those programs on the radio? This, this soothing voice comes on and says, Oh, friends, in you there is a little flame of God, and all you need to do is fan that flame, and it will grow, it'll rise up and you'll be filled with love for one another. Now, this, this is Unitarian uh, Christian science, Gnosticism is what it is. And, and it has nothing to do with the truth of, uh, of Scripture. We are all made in the image of God, but until we're born again, we are outside the kingdom of God. And we become inside the kingdom of God when a portion of the fullness that was in Christ dwells in us by the person of the Holy Spirit. The deity, the fullness of the deity, the paloma, the the, the entirety of the deity of God dwelt in the body of Jesus Christ. I mean, this answers the whole question that people have argued for thousands of years or at least 1,500 years about was Jesus all God? Was he all man? Was he part God? Was he part man? Uh, You know, it really, unless you study something of the Eastern Orthodox faith or the early history of the church, you don't know how much silly argument went over on over, you know, whether, whether Jesus was part God, part man. How much was he God? How much was he man? If he were God, how could he be man? And maybe he wasn't really man. He just looked like a man. And I mean, the whole thing becomes absurd, You know, it it tells us back in that 8th verse, uh, not to be captive to philosophy and empty deception. There's a lot of that goes on in in the guise of Christianity. But scripture is really quite plain. That in Jesus Christ, who was totally man, dwelt the entire (coughs) deity totally God. We cannot explain that. But he was all God, all man, not a little bit of man, a little bit of God, or 20%, 80%, or some other figure and he is the head over all rule and authority. And, and then it goes on that 11th verse to talk about you were also, he, he's talking to the Colossians. Colossae was a Greek city in Western Asia Minor, not very far from Laodicea. It's in hardly recognizable ruins today, just as Laodicea is. And, and he was not talking to Jews here. He says, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead has spiritually circumcised those that have come to know him by faith. Meaning the body of death that we drag around has been cut away from us and we don't have to serve it. It doesn't mean we still don't have it and it doesn't mean we can't yield to it. But it means we don't have to yield to it. Because it's been cut away and we can choose to follow in Christ and do what is right in his strength. Because the Spirit of God is there to empower us just as he raised Jesus from the dead. We have that resurrection power. And so spiritual circumcision is ours. And and he goes on to uh, say that uh, in verse 13, You were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That's the way everybody is born into this world, dead in transgression and uncircumcision of the flesh. And then Christ comes along and creates that circumcision which forgives us of our sin and gives us new life in Christ and eternal life, which is not that of those who still live in their transgressions unborn again. Having canceled out the debt of certificate, the, yeah, the certificate of debt, I mean. Which means all of those low Old Testament laws that they couldn't follow. Paul tells us in Galatians that the purpose of the law was to show people that you didn't measure up to God. We all fall short of God. And the Old Testament, I'm sorry, not the Old Testament, but the law shows us that. But now it's been t- pounded right to the cross, just like Jesus. the sign was pounded to the top of Jesus cross that said, you know, that he was king of the Jews. Just like that, the law was pounded onto the cross because we couldn't measure up to it. And, and he took that death certificate away from us so that we have new life in Christ. And he has disarmed all the spiritual rulers and authorities. That doesn't mean presidents and kings. Rulers and authorities are talking about the demonic world and the, the supernatural powers and authorities that are in opposition to God, making a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Powerful passage, and it helps us to understand, I think, what the real meaning of circumcision was. Just because a child was circumcised on the eighth day and grew up in Israel as a circumcised young man did not mean that that young man was automatically into the kingdom of God. It was the sign of the covenant, but he had to have a circumcised heart also to walk by faith, in repentance and obedience. And that's what God is doing here for Israel at Gilgal. He is circumcising not only the flesh, but their hearts and preparing them for the work which he has given them to do in the conquest. Now, in Exodus, we're told that circumcision of the flesh was absolutely essential for practicing the Passover. Let's go to Exodus chapter 12, verse 43. Exodus 12, verse 43, the Lord said to, Abe, to, to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it, but every man's slave purchased with money after you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. Verse 48, but if a, strange, if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and then let him come near to celebrate it. He shall be like a native of the land, but no circumci- uncircumcised person may eat of it. They could not practice the Passover without having performed this, this basic obedience. That's what it's all about basic obedience. If, if they were not circumcised, they had not taken on the seal of the Abrahamic covenant. And therefore, they were not part of spiritual Israel. Those that were not part of spiritual Israel, therefore, were not under the blood of the Passover lamb. Therefore, for them to take of the Passover would prostitute the sacrament. And God said it's not going to happen. To me as I read that, it what what popped into my mind is the close parallel between this and communion, and the warnings that are given in communion, which sometimes we may not take as seriously as we ought. Let me let me turn to First Corinthians chapter eleven. First Corinthians chapter eleven, beginning at verse twenty-seven. We read, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. Whenever communion is performed, this passage, of course, is read and should be read in its entirety, and we should take it seriously, that we get our hearts right before the Lord, before we take communion. Because even though if you're a true believer and and you're taking communion with with a bad situation in your life, it doesn't kick you out of the kingdom of God, it can result in some of these things that we read here. And so we need to be very, very careful that we approach the communion as something holy, as something that Lord has instituted as a statement that we are part of the kingdom of God. And to me, it's very parallel. To this uh, Passover celebration, where they had to be prepared to practice the celebration of the Passover in their hearts, as well as in their bodies. Well, I think that it's it's really really important for us to um, remember that God is very serious about our relationship with Him, and for us, I think, who live in in a world uh, in a country where there is so much true hypocrisy, you know, Christians are always accused of being hypocrites because they don't live uh, perfectly, but we live in a country that's full of hypocrisy, of people who claim one thing and do another, and it's, I think, very important that we do not get absorbed into that and start thinking in the way that the world thinks that everything is okay and let it all slide by, because we still serve a holy God. His holiness has not diminished. His holiness is as great as it ever has been and always will be, And he doesn't expect us to be perfect before we come before him, but he does expect us to be repentant and to have a heart desirous of obedience. Our obedience is very imperfect, but he knows our heart. And if our heart is headed towards, yes, Lord, I want to do this. I have goofed again. I I repent and I want to do your will. That's what he's looking for. He isn't looking for perfection because if he was, we'd all be gone goslings because none of us is perfect. But that's what he's looking for. And that's what he was looking for in Israel. Joshua's not perfect. Moses wasn't perfect. Neither were Miriam and Aaron, but they had a heart for him. And of course, David is used so often that he gets worn out, uh, I think, of of a man who was after God's heart, but but made so many mistakes. And yet, in his heart, he really did want to serve the Lord, and he did repent. And uh, this becomes a powerful example to us, I think, And I think, hopefully, these uh, passages in Joshua do the same. Well, what I want to do is pick up from there next week, particularly looking at the timing of this, because we're told in the passage of Scripture that Israel crossed the Jordan on the 10th of the first month. The first month of the Hebrew ceremonial calendar was Nisan. And crossing Nisan Nisan on the 10th, Passover was to be the 14th. That's just four days. That timing is no accident, no accident. It was not coincidental. God brought them across purposely at that very moment because of what he was going to do for them. As they walked in obedience and again practiced the Passover, which they had neglected for 39 years, God would bless them and they would move on to great victory in the Promised Land.